Hobby Lobby and other for-profit companies shouldn't be given a license to harm their female employees in the name of the company's religion. We agree that Americans do not check their faith at the door when they go into business. Bosses should really stick to what they know best, the boardroom and the bottom line, and stay out of the bedroom and the exam room. So it's really a matter of who's paying for it. It's not restricting the actual access to it. So the bosses are not getting into the exam room here. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. Uh, my co-host Jay Craig Williams is unable to be with us today. He's uh, actually got a court conflict that's going to keep him away from being on the show today, so we're going to uh, carry on without him. One quick note before we get started. This is uh, something we don't usually talk about here, but we're going to ask our listeners to uh, do us a little bit of a favor. We are The Legal Talk Network is conducting a survey to learn more about our listeners, and we would really appreciate your feedback. Uh, is there something you'd like to hear more of covered on The Legal Talk Network or a product you'd like to learn more about? Let us know. Uh, we're we're doing a survey. Go to legaltalknetwork.com slash survey and take just a few moments to fill out the, the survey there. Well, thank you in advance for your feedback uh, and also want to let you know that uh, select listeners who complete the survey will be interviewed for an upcoming Legal Talk Network special report. So visit legaltalknetwork.com slash survey to do that. And then... Uh, One final, uh, I guess, housekeeping matter, but it's much more important than that, is to uh, mention our sponsor for today's program, which is Clio, uh, the online practice management program for lawyers available at www.goclio.com, and we uh, certainly appreciate their continuing sponsorship of this show. Well, on June 30th, uh, the Supreme Court uh, issued its decision in uh, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, in it, uh, the court ruled five to four that private, for-profit, closely held companies don't have to supply all forms of contraception uh, as uh, mandated under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010. There are uh, numerous uh, and passionate uh, opinions being bandied about out there about the merits and implications of this case. Some say it's uh, about reproductive rights. Some say uh, the uh, implications go well beyond that, even just that issue. Uh, We are going to uh, discuss more about the Hobby Lobby case today with two guests uh, who are going to help us uh, think about uh, what it means and and what the implications are. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Emily Martin. Emily is Vice President and General Counsel at the National Women's Law Center, where she undertakes cross-cutting projects addressing women's health, economic security, and education and employment opportunities. Prior to joining the uh, National Women's Law Center, uh, Emily served as Deputy Director of the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. 
and was a law clerk to Senior Judge Wilfred Feinberg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and to Judge T.S. Ellis III at the Eastern District of Virginia. She has served as Vice President and President of the Fair Housing Justice Center, a nonprofit organization in New York City. Welcome, Emily Martin. Thanks so much. And thanks for being with us. And uh, our second guest today uh, is Elizabeth Slattery. Elizabeth is a senior legal policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She researches a variety of issues such as the rule of law, the First Amendment, civil rights and equal protection, and the scope of constitutional provisions. Uh, Elizabeth is also, also studies and writes about cases before the Supreme Court, judicial nominations, and the proper role of the courts. She manages the Mies Center's appellate advocacy programs, including moot court sessions to prepare litigators for oral argument before the Supreme Court. Her analysis and commentary have appeared in the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, as well as outlets such as the National Review Online, the Daily Signal, the Daily Caller, and U.S. News and World Report. Uh, Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Elizabeth Slattery. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start with uh, just kind of getting an overview from each of you on perhaps you can tell us a little bit about uh, your organization and your uh, perspective on the Hobby Lobby case, uh, where you come at it. Uh, So, Elizabeth Slatter, let's start with you. Sure, and thanks for having me. Uh, So I work at the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C. We research and educate uh, members of um, the public and and Congress and the media and uh, promote uh, conservative public policy uh, based on free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, um, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. So not surprisingly, we were on the side of Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood Specialties in, uh, in the case that the Supreme Court decided last week, and uh, we agree that Americans do not uh, check their faith at the door when they go into business. Thanks. And Emily Martin, uh, same question to you. Uh, what's your, what's, uh, tell us a little bit about your organization and, and your involvement or perspective on this case. Sure. So the National Women's Law Center is an organization that seeks to protect women's rights and expand women's opportunities. Um, For more than 40 years, we've been working to protect and promote women's health, women's education, employment, and economic security. And in this case, we filed a brief on behalf of 68 other organizations dedicated to women's health and to equal opportunity arguing that Hobby Lobby and other for-profit companies shouldn't be given a license to harm their female employees in the name of the company's religion and shouldn't be allowed to ignore the religious and moral beliefs and health needs of the women who work for them. This this case, in this case, uh, both Conestoga Wood and Hobby Lobby, uh, and I guess there was actually a, a, third, a third company that was kind of an offshoot of, of Hobby Lobby, objected in particular to uh, the health insurance mandate that they uh, provide uh, contraceptive coverage for four particular forms of, of, of contraception options. Uh, the, the decision mentions uh, several times that uh, there are some 20 uh, FDA-approved uh, forms of contraception, uh, but that this case, uh, the objections in this case pertain to uh, four in particular. Uh, Elizabeth Slattery, what what was it that was objectionable about those four forms of birth control? 
So Hobby Lobby and Conestoga objected to being forced to pay for four drugs and devices specifically that they consider to be potentially life-ending. So there were two forms of um, emergency contraception and then some other types of intrauterine devices. And under their uh, their religious beliefs, uh, they, they felt that uh, they would be violating their beliefs if they paid for these drugs and devices. Like you said, uh, there, there were 20 different forms of birth control mandated uh, by the Department of Health and Human Services, and Hobby Lobby and Conestoga didn't object to 16 of them, just, just the four uh, that they felt that they should not have to pay for. Emily, I guess for me, after reading this decision, and I think some of the commentary that I've seen, I guess it raises the question as to whether this this decision really is anything about this decision that kind of stops at those four. Uh, I mean, what is your take on what this what the implications of this decision are for uh, for reproductive rights of women? Well, first of all, even if the decision were only limited to those four methods of birth control, it has a huge impact. You know. Bosses should really stick to what they know best, um, the boardroom and the bottom line, and stay out of the bedroom and the exam room. Uh, So for lots of women, the IUD, for example, is the medically appropriate form of birth control for them. So, for example, women who can't use hormonal birth control because they have health conditions that contraindicate that. For those women, a copper IUD is far and away the most effective and safe choice. And it's also a really expensive one. To get an IUD costs $800 to $1,000 up front. So it's not an easy out-of-pocket cost to, to absorb. Um, for victims of sexual assault, emergency contraception, one of the forms of contraception that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga would objected to, is probably your only option. So it's not, first of all, enough to say, well, it's just those four, there are the other 16, don't worry about it. But second of all, there's nothing about the court's decision that limits its application to those four forms of birth control. The analysis by the majority of the court applies equally, or would appear to, to all 20 forms, and there are definitely for-profit corporations out there that are objecting to providing any form of contraceptive coverage at all for any form of birth control. And I'll just add one thing, that the owners of Hobby Lobby are definitely entitled to their own religious beliefs, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And science and medicine does not support their view of the four methods that they object to. These are contraceptive methods just like the other 16 methods. Well, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in what you just said that I'd like to follow up on. I, I want to ask Elizabeth first uh, if you want to respond at all in terms of the the, the birth control issues, uh, uh, in particular about whether uh, this decision stops at, at those four, and or whether it uh, really kind of opens the door to something more here. Sure. So, um, a couple points I want to make. The first is that the decision uh, does not allow businesses to deny their female employees access to birth control. It's just about who has to pay for it. And the government, you know, could provide for the uh, cost, uh, you know, without any cost sharing to the em- these employees itself, but it chose to force the employers to pay for it. So it's really a matter of who's paying for it. It's not restricting the actual access to it. So the bosses are not getting into the exam room here. Well, can I, can I just stop you there? Can I just stop you there? I mean, it just, just uh, only because I think... Uh, 
Justice Ginsburg's dissent make, makes the point somewhat compellingly that that uh, in some cases this is going to be beyond the means of many people to pay for. I mean, she, she talks about the the cost of an IUD being somewhere like a thousand dollars. So even though it's not saying, even though it's not denying access, does is there a functional denial of access here based on cost? Well, again, it goes back to who's paying for it, and the government decided that uh, providing uh, contraception at no cost to these female employees was a compelling interest, but it, it is choosing not to pay for it itself. Uh, you know, it, instead, it, it's trying to force these employers who have a religious objection to pay for it, but if it's really such a compelling interest, I think the government could find a way to pay for it itself. Um, so an- another point that I wanted to follow up on that, that Emily mentioned is um, about the science here versus the, the religious question. And really what it comes down to is Hobby Lobby and Conestoga have a sincere religious belief, and it's not for the government to say whether or not that belief is correct. That, uh, that is what uh, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act protects. And, you know, Hobby Lobby may, you know, we may disagree on the science here, uh, but it's not about the science. It's about their religious belief. And they have a sincere belief that nobody objected to. Could I respond to the question about the real impact on access? Um, sure, go ahead. So, so it is true that the majority decision said there's some other way that the government could do it, and the government should figure out some other way to provide this coverage if, they, if the government wants to. But that's really not a, an appropriate answer, I don't think because birth control is so central to women's preventive health care. And what the court has basically done is say, well, figure out another way, government. But of course, some members of Congress have been doing everything they can to throw sand in the gears and prevent this contraceptive coverage from being offered. So it's not as easy as saying, well, we're going to pass a law tomorrow that it will address this, that will allow women to get full access. A law was passed that said that this is part of the basic insurance coverage that everybody should be entitled to because it is such basic preventive health care. And secondly, because birth control coverage, again, is such a basic element of health care for women, it shouldn't be left to some jerry-rigged system of accommodations where you get all the rest of your health coverage here, but to go get birth control, you have to go through some other process and some other system in order to get it. That's not what equal treatment means, and birth control should be available like all other essential health care. It shouldn't be made to, you shouldn't have to jump through a lot of extra hoops to get this coverage, which is so critical to women's health. I guess the question that jumped out from, from the decision, and I guess Justice Ginsburg talks about this in, in her dissent, but uh, what are the limits of this? Again, we, are, are we talking about just four methods of birth control? Are we, t- are we talking about the potential uh, for employers to object to other forms of uh, health care uh, based on their religious beliefs? And, and if so, uh, do we end up uh, creating a whole uh, uh, sideline of, of the government having to provide uh, health services uh, where employers object? Uh, Elizabeth, I'd just be curious on your position on that. I mean, does this open the floodgates, really, to employers objecting to providing uh, coverage for uh, health services outside the realm of uh, reproductive rights? So I think it's important to get on the table here the the law that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga were relying upon, which is the uh, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that it provides a balancing test here. So um, companies can certainly make the sort of, uh, you know, 
sky is falling, uh, religious objections that, you know, that Justice Ginsburg mentions in her dissent and others have mentioned in the commentary following the decision. Um, you know, people have talked about objections to blood transfusions and antidepressants and vaccinations and all of these sorts of things. But the bottom line is, RIFR doesn't give these businesses a blank check. It provides a balancing test to balance between the government's uh, compelling interest and the free exercise rights of individuals and, and, and companies. So, you know, it's really going to come down to a case-by-case basis, and that's what RIFRA, uh, you know, that's what RIFRA intended to do, what Congress intended to do with passing RIFRA. So one example that comes up a lot is will businesses uh, that have some sort of objection to vaccinations be able to uh, not provide for vaccinations? But if you look at the prongs of RIFRA, one of them is that uh, the government's method of, of um, advancing its specific goal has to be the least restrictive means to advance that goal. And, you know, with vaccinations, it's hard to imagine uh, if you don't have universal coverage with, ma- with vaccinations, how they'll actually operate in a, uh, an effective manner. Whereas with, uh, with the contraception, co- contraceptive coverage, you know, the way the the government chose to do it was to force employers to cover these things. But then they exempted, you know, a whole host of organizations, grandfathered plans that have nothing to do with religious beliefs, uh, you know, employers with fewer than 50 employees. And then they also created uh, this accommodation for religious nonprofit organizations. So, you know, the fact that there are, there's this accommodation and all these other things goes to the fact that there was a less restrictive means of advancing this goal here. And if I could respond, I think Justice Ginsburg is absolutely right to raise the concerns that she does. And and frankly, I think that you heard as much from Elizabeth where she said, well, this will have to be litigated on a case-by-case basis. And any company that has an objection to antidepressants or to blood transfusions should try, try it out in court and the court will have to figure out each one. As Elizabeth says, the test that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act requires is to first ask whether a particular law um, substantially burdens corporations, it turns out, religious exercise. And here the court basically said, if the corporation says it substantially burdens your ex- its exercise, it does, and there's no further inquiry. We, if you say it, we believe it. So that's not much of a test anymore. And then the question is whether the the rule, say the rule that you cover blood transfusions, whether that furthers a compelling interest, and you could see why blood transfusions do. Um, But the court asserted here that it assumed that contraceptive coverage forwarded compelling interests. So that part of the test was met here as well. So then the question is whether there's a less restrictive means that could be used to further that interest. And again, the majority decision suggested that it would be less restrictive for the government to just directly provide these services for free if they cared so much about them. So it's not at all clear to me why that isn't always the answer if an employer says, I don't want to provide vaccinations isn't the answer, well, the employer shouldn't have to. The government can provide it for free if they care so much about it. Or if the employer says, I don't want to provide um, coverage for medication that's based on pork products, which some medications, some very basic and important medications are, why isn't the answer always, well, if it's so bloody important, the government can provide it for free. It's just 
a test that does not have obvious limiting principles, despite the majority's assertion that maybe vaccinations would be different. There's not a lot of analysis that the majority offered to show why, in fact, vaccinations would be different. Elizabeth, I bet you're. I bet you'd like to respond to that, but let me. I just need to take a quick break, and uh, I'll get right back to you in just a few moments. So uh, stay with us. We will be back uh, in just a few moments to talk more about the Hobby Lobby case. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away today. Uh, we are talking about the Hobby Lobby decision from the Supreme Court with Two guests, Emily Martin from National Women's Law Center and Elizabeth Slattery from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth, uh, I, I just cut you off uh, and uh, go ahead and uh, say what you were going to say. So um, Emily was going through the different parts of RIFRA and the analysis and uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby. And I just wanted to make a, a couple of points about um, the front end of the test, about the substantial burden. So uh, RIFRA... Uh, says that the government um, cannot substantially burden free exercise of religion uh, unless it, it's advancing a compelling government interest by the least restrictive means. So that's what we're talking about here. So I want to go back to the substantial burden, because what we were dealing with in Hobby Lobby's case was a burden of $475 million a year if they chose not to comply with the mandate, and, and they were um, you know forced to pay the fine. And the Supreme Court pointed out that if that amount is not a substantial burden, it's hard to see what, what would be. It, it was not merely uh, that Hobby Lobby said there was a burden. It was that they could show the numbers there. And I think, um, you know, w- one of the other issues goes to this, uh, this idea of exercising religion. And nobody was doubting the sincerity of Hobby Lobby or Conestoga's beliefs. Uh, the government did did try to argue that there were too many intervening circumstances between Hobby Lobby providing the coverage and paying for the drugs and devices and the employee actually getting them and taking them. Um, but the government rejected that argument, and it said that, you know, it, it, it's not proper for a court or the government um, to to be saying whether or not that level of complicity violates their religious beliefs. Uh, you know that that's up to the uh, to the individuals based on their religious beliefs. Well, nobody was doubting the sincerity of the beliefs of of the owners of these companies, the the Hans and the Conestoga Wood case, and the and the uh, Greens, I believe it was, in, in Hobby Lobby. But but what about this question? 
of of whether a corporation, even a closely held corporation, can have uh, can can it can have religious beliefs and, and opinions. I, I, you know, again, uh, the, just not to keep citing Justice Ginsburg here, but I mean, she makes the point that that uh, you know a closely held corporation can be a quite a substantial company. Uh, the fact that it's closely held doesn't mean that it's a small business. How do we get to the point of saying a corporate entity can can have religious beliefs? So I, I would agree with uh, with Justice Ginsburg that you know Hobby Lobby is definitely a big company, but that doesn't change the nature of the people who run it. And it's a you know it's a it's a family run business, closely held. Uh, you know you've got basically one family um, operating it, and and they run it in other ways in compliance uh, with their religious beliefs. For example, they're closed on Sundays because they feel like that uh, that is in a, is in line with uh, their uh, their religious beliefs. And uh, another example that I've, I've heard about them is that um, they've received requests from beer distributors to backhaul beer on their trucks, and they've declined that because they, they feel like that would also violate their beliefs. So with a company like this, like Hobby Lobby, it's, um, it's pretty easy to determine the religious beliefs of the company at large because you've got one family running it. And it is uh, definitely different from something like a, a, a publicly traded corporation. Um, you know, so I think that there's definitely a distinction uh, with, with a company like this one. While the, go, go ahead, Emily. That's fine. The court um, said that they're consi- they were considering um, privately held corporations because that was what was before them, closely held corporations. I think it's also important to note that the court nowhere said of course, if it were a publicly held corporation, our decision would be different. It just said we don't have to reach that question today because that's not what we are seeing in front of us. And in saying that a corporation can exercise religion, that corporations have, in essence, a, a right to pray, even if the exercise of that religion has a harm on employees, even if it impinges on employees' legal rights. I think that that is really one of the most radical parts of this decision, to say not only do corporations have religious rights, but they can exercise those religious rights to the detriment of the real people who work for them and who depend on them for their health coverage and for their economic security. Well, I guess that again that raises the question, and, and I, you've all you've all read the the commentary, I'm sure, that suggests that some people are saying this this opens the door to other forms of I, well, I don't know if discrimination is the right word, but uh, you know if if an employer uh, objects to homosexuality, uh, can an employer therefore uh, rely on this opinion to refuse to hire people based on their sexual orientation? Is that in this opinion, is is there the potential for that, or is that is that just a, a drastic overreading of what happened here? I think it's definitely it's definitely possible for companies to make that argument now. It's not completely clear what a court would decide, but say if a company said, "I have a religious objection to paying women as much as I pay men because men are the head of the household," and That might sound like a crazy example, but there have been similar sorts of cases in court where companies have said that. The court presumably would basically take the company at its word that this was a substantial burden on its religion, since that seemed to be the analysis the court was applying here. While it noted the burdens that Hobby Lobby would face if it 
um, didn't provide contraceptive coverage. It went on to say, it's really not our place to delve into whether a particular burden substantially impinges on religious exercise, that that is a question of religious belief, that it's not our place to measure. So then we would ask whether the non-discrimination laws forwarded a compelling interest. I certainly think they do. I think the court would say that. Um, but then the question is whether this is the least restrictive means of forwarding that interest. And again, why couldn't the answer be, well, if the government wants to give these people jobs, the government should give these people jobs. Why should that fall on the employer and the corporation if it harms the corporation's religious beliefs. If the government wants to pay people equally, the government should subsidize that woman's wages to get her up to the male's male employees. I think those claims are definitely available under this decision. And unfortunately, the majority opinion, again, while asserting that discrimination in hiring might be different, at least if it's racial discrimination, which was the example it gave, it asserted that, but it really didn't provide the analysis to show why that is a completely different situation from what we are talking about here. Elizabeth, do you uh, have thoughts on that? Do you, uh, what do you see on that question of, of, of the uh, implications? You know, just, just a couple points. Again, I want to reiterate you know, that, that RIFRA, the law that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga were relying on, is a balancing test. And Emily says that uh, the court is taking them at their word that there's a substantial burden on their free exercise. But that's not really what they're doing. Uh, it's, it's not about um, taking them at their word that it's a substantial burden. It's taking them that, at their word that their beliefs are sincere. And uh, that's where the line drawing comes in, where the government shouldn't be saying, well, you know, you're right about your beliefs or not, but we're looking at the substantial burden here. And, you know, in the case of Hobby Lobby, we were looking at $475 million a year, which is a huge amount in fines that they would have been, uh, would have owed if they were forced to choose between compliance with the mandate or paying a fine. So I think that that's a different sort of situation from, uh, you know, these, these other hypotheticals about uh, discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation or race. And I think we'd have to see how those, how those play out in court because I, I'm, I'm not sure that they uh, would go the same way. Yeah, although I, I guess hypothetically a, a claim based on uh, a, a wage claim uh, that, that uh, they, they're claiming they should be able to pay, if they're claiming they should be able to pay women less than men for some reason, I mean, that, that could add up to substantial dollars in the same way this, this would, uh, using that kind of an analysis, I would think, depending on the size of the company. It's certainly yeah, true that, that, if an, that if an employer is willfully violating the equal pay laws, that they are subject to big legal fines and consequences. So I think that we have uh, certainly attempted as a country to substantially burden employers who pay women less than men uh, in that way. Uh, Another quick point I want to make here, though, is that you know, what we had here was uh, the HHS mandate, which is a regulation passed by an administrative agency pursuant to a statute, pitted against um, you know, a, a law that was actually passed by Congress. So I think if if we're looking at a situation where it's anti-discrimination laws which are actually passed by Congress, pitted against RIFRA, I think that may be a little different. But with this case, Congress didn't actually pass the regulation at issue. They put it off to the administration to take care of it because I, I get the sense that there wasn't the political will to get exactly what they wanted done done through the legislative process. 
Yeah. Uh, just one other quick question. It, we're, we're, we are getting close to the end of our time, but I want to ask the, this, this case was decided as, as we've said several times under the religious freedom restoration act. And it wasn't, as I read the case, really a, a, a constitutional case. So does that mean that, that the, that if, if Congress wanted to amend the religious freedom restoration act to, uh, uh, change the impact of this case, it could do that. I think I've already seen there's been a Senate bill filed to that effect. Uh, is, is it within the power of Congress to uh, change the outcome of this case if Congress wanted to do that? It absolutely is. The court was really clear that it was looking at the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and not applying a First Amendment constitutional anal- analysis. And that's exactly why earlier this week um, the Protect Women's Health from Corporate Interference Act was introduced, which would make clear that employers cannot use religion to opt out of providing any form of health care to their employees, including health care that's so important to women's health. Um, This is really within Congress's power to fix, and Congress should fix it. Uh, All right. We are just about at the end. Yeah, go ahead. you want to? Did you want to say something more on that? This is Elizabeth. I was just yeah. going to say that um, it, it is certainly true that this was a, a statutory case, not a constitutional case, and that you know when Congress passed the Affordable, Affordable Care Act, they could have put in a provision uh, you know, limiting um, basically how, how the court uh, ruled in this case, but they chose not to. Okay, thank you. Well, we are uh, just about out of time. As a matter of fact, we're a little bit over our time here. So uh, I'm going to ask each of you to... Uh, Give us your uh, final thoughts on this topic and also to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you uh, uh, if they'd like to do that. So, um, Emily, let's start with you. Well, my final thought is is that women will have to continue to fight for what's right for affordable birth control and for autonomy over their own health care decisions. And this Supreme Court decision by five justices won't ultimately stand in the political realm when women stand up for their rights, which is why the legislation introduced earlier this week is so important. And to learn more about the Protect Women's Health from Corporate Interference Act or about the issue, people should definitely go to our website, which is www.nwlc.org. Thank you very much. And uh, Elizabeth Slattery, your final thoughts. So I think the court got it right in this decision. Uh, You know, Americans do not have to leave their faith at the door when they go into business, uh, you know, our religious liberty is not restricted to the home or, or to the pulpit. And I, I think this, the beginning of the problem that we're, that we're seeing with the HHS mandate, which is just one problem, one small problem with the entire Affordable Care Act. So I, I think there, uh, there will be more movement on, on that in, in the coming months and years. And uh, for more information uh, about, about the Affordable Care Act and a conservative perspective, uh, you can check out heritage.org and you can follow me on Twitter. Um, EH, my handle is EH Slattery. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Once again, uh, Emily Martin from the National Women's Law Center and Elizabeth Slattery from the Heritage Foundation, we appreciate your taking the time to be with us today and to share your insights about this case. It was a really good discussion and uh, appreciate both of you taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. Same here. Well, that about does it uh, for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. We will be back uh, in a couple of weeks with another great legal topic. Thanks for listening today. Uh, A reminder, again, uh, at the top of the show, we told you about a survey uh, at our website, at the Legal Talk Network website. Please take a second to check that out and complete it if you want to do that. And uh, remember that when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. 
Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.